0: We're going to read God's Word this morning from two places as we expound a part of the Fourth Commandment. First, I'm going to read again the part of the Fourth Commandment that we'll be explaining this morning, Exodus 20, verse 9. And then I'm going to read Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Exodus 20, verse 9. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. And now Ephesians chapter 6, just a few verses there, 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ not with eye service as men pleasers but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth the same shall he receive of the Lord whether he be bond or free and ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respect of persons with him. That far we read God's word this morning. I wasn't going to read the Lord's Day of the Catechism that explains the fourth commandment this morning, but I changed my mind. Let's take out our Psalter's turn to page 22 in the back of the Psalter Lord's Day 38 where we read in question 103 what doth God require in the fourth commandment? First that the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained, and that I, especially on the Sabbath, that is, on the day of rest, diligently frequent the Church of God to hear his word, to use the sacraments, publicly to call upon the Lord and contribute to the relief of the poor as becomes a Christian. Secondly, that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to work by His Spirit in me, and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. As you know, following the Catechism, we're explaining the Ten Commandments, the rule of life for God's people. I'm going to preach more than one sermon on this fourth commandment and on Lord's Day 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Part of the reason for that is because sometimes we forget the part of the fourth commandment that calls us six days to work. The Heidelberg Catechism does not explicitly treat that part Of the Fourth Commandment. In fact, none of the well-known Reformed and Presbyterian creeds of the Reformation time explicitly treats that part of the Fourth Commandment. The only possible mention of that part of the Fourth Commandment in Lord's Day 38 is something that you might take by implication as referring to that part of the Fourth Commandment. When the Heidelberg Catechism says that the ministry of the gospel and the schools must be maintained. It says that, of course, because on the Sabbath day, we are to have rest, and ultimately that rest is in the rest of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that rest has to be proclaimed to us on the Lord's day. And how is that rest going to be proclaimed to us on the Lord's day, except there is a called and supported ministry of the church to proclaim that rest to us, and how can there be a called and supported ministry of the church unless the people of God are working and contributing to that ministry of the church? But that's by implication. In spite of the fact that the Heidelberg Catechism does not explicitly treat that part of the fourth commandment, it is important to examine it. It's part of the moral law of Jehovah God. And besides, we live in an age that undervalues work. For so many, work is seen as a necessary evil merely. It's something that everybody has to do, but it's only something that you have to do. And probably the only reason why you do it is so that you can have enough money by the time you get to the weekend to be able to have a good time on the weekend. How many songs are sung in the age in which we live about the evils, really, of work? And these things can affect the church and God's people as well in our thinking. It's vital to understand work from the perspective of the Word of God, And the perspective of the moral law of Jehovah God and be reminded that the call to work is part of the Ten Commandments, the moral law of Jehovah God. And from the perspective of his children now who've been redeemed out of the house of bondage and brought into his house, we understand that in this moral law God is saying to us, you are my children, I've brought you out of this terrible house, the house where the evil one was your head and ruler, and where you ran to the beat of his drum and have brought you into my own house by my grace. Children, in my house, God says, we work. And we work hard because work is right and good and because work is good for you. That's what we see this morning as we examine this part of the fourth commandment under the theme the command to work. Let's notice first the command itself, second the place in which we are to labor, and third the motivation to obey it. The command to work, the command, the place, and the motivation. The calling to work comes from God repeatedly throughout the Old and New Testaments, but it comes most pointedly right here in the fourth commandment of the moral law. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. This part of the fourth commandment is the origin of what's called the reformed doctrine of vocation. Vocation. Vocation means calling. The reformed doctrine of our work as God's calling granted to us. It's the doctrine that says whatever lawful work God gives to you in whatever lawful sphere of life is work that God himself appoints you to do. God has placed you in this position. God has given you certain tasks to fulfill in that position and carrying them out is fulfilling a calling that God has given you in that station and therefore is something that brings him glory, that is pleasing to him no matter how great you think that calling is or how insignificant you think that calling is, no matter how great your paycheck is or how little your paycheck is or even whether you get a paycheck at all. That Reformed doctrine of vocation comes from right here, this part of the fourth commandment where the command says, six days shalt the labor and do all thy work. You notice there that there's two words for work, labor and work, and that properly translates to Hebrew words, different Hebrew words that are behind those two different English words. The second one, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, is a word that means specifically What has been appointed to you, a position, an appointment, a vocation, a calling. You can see that even in the English translation here in the fourth commandment. Do all thy work. What has been appointed specifically to you to do and not to somebody else. So that God says, this is your position. This is your appointment from me. You have something that I have given you to do that other people are not to do, at least not here in this time and in this space. It's the same word that's used in Jonah 1, verse 8. When the sailors on the boat in the midst of the storm are questioning Jonah, why is this storm coming upon us? This obvious storm that's been dropped here from God. Tell us, What are you doing? What are you running from? And what is your occupation? That same word there, occupation, is the word thy work. What is your appointment from God? Obviously, you're you're forsaking your appointment from God, and he's chasing you down. Do all thy work is do all what is required in your position, in your occupation. The first word, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work emphasizes the fact that in your appointment, in your particular position, there are tasks for you to do that require strenuous labor. That you must sweat to perform. That you must labor, work hard in order to fulfill your work. To do what's been appointed to you. But you do it. God calls you to do it. You do it with delight unto him, even though it's difficult, and even though sometimes you don't like it because it's obedience to him, and when you do it, it pleases him. So you put these two words, these two concepts together, and this is the Reformed doctrine of vocation. God gives you appointments, tasks, and he gives you all kinds of things that you have to do in order to carry out those appointments that required labor, hard work. In the middle and late Middle Ages, that doctrine of vocation became totally corrupted by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church corrupted all the doctrines of the Scripture, and because it's all connected, this became corrupted too. And they started to say that this part of the fourth commandment, at least the understanding of having an appointment from God, a calling, a vocation, that only applies to the clergy of the church, not to anybody else. It only applies to the bishops and the cardinals and to the pope. Only they can say that they have a calling from God, an appointment from him. Nobody else. Everybody else has to work hard, to be sure. But you're not fulfilling a task to God's glory in what you do. Your work in home, your work in society, it's completely unimportant. It has no value in itself in the eyes of God. The only value that it has in the eyes of God is that with that work, you can support the bishops and the priests in what they're doing in their calling from Jehovah God. But there's nothing about your work in itself that brings God glory. And it was Luther that God used first and then the reformers after him, to restore the biblical doctrine of vocation to the church. As Luther saw from the scriptures in this fourth commandment, that all that God's people were given to do by God was an appointment from God himself for them, and that the tasks that God gave to them to do were something, whether in home or society or the church, things that could bring God glory, that were well-pleasing in his sight when they did them lawfully, honorably. He said it wasn't just the priests who had a direct calling from God in their work, but mothers in the home did too. Men in the fields or men in their businesses. Anybody else who obeyed the law of God in their station in life. And so when Luther explained this doctrine of vocation, he took the simplest and most despised calling or vocation he could think of, that of a simple servant girl. And he said to these girls this, quote, if you do your daily household chores faithfully, that's better to God than all the austere life of the monks. And he said to mothers in the home, what you do working in your house is worth as much to God as if you did it up there in heaven to the Lord Jesus himself. And Calvin, following Luther, wrote that because of this restoration of the doctrine of vocation, quote, there will arise also a singular consolation that no task will be so sordid and base provided we obey our calling in it. It will shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. You can imagine how liberating this was for the people of God. How wonderful this was to them. That they could please God in their work. Not only in their giving money to support the clergy. Although that too, that's not unimportant. That's very important. And the supporting of the ministry of the church to herald the rest for God's people. But not only that. It's not only through that means that it can bring glory to God, but also there's a direct glory granted to God in my work. That even if nobody sees what I'm doing, I can bring Him honor by doing it well, because He's appointed this task to me. They could know that they didn't have to be in the upper echelons of clergy life in order for God to notice their labor. And even for those who were in the upper echelons of society, but weren't clergy, they could know that their calling was not just to rape the people as much as they could monetarily, and then give it to the church, and that would make it okay. But they must fulfill their calling in their business in a way that honors God's word, and that will be pleasing to Him. Could pay a good wage to their employees. God would be pleased with that. Provide a good product. And even if nobody noticed, God would notice and would be pleased with it. You can imagine how this unleashed the hard work of God's people. This is why things developed so much after the Reformation. Doesn't that affect your work too? Doesn't that give you a a zeal to work? Work hard for God's glory and what He's appointed to you? The reformers viewed all lawful work as a gift from God to his people, not an evil to be avoided or something just to get through, to get to the weekend, but as a gift from God that he grants to me to do this, even if it was a simple thing that I could honor him in it. And that view is precisely the view of sacred scripture. Some people think that the teaching of the Bible is that work is an effect of the fall and that therefore work itself is part of the curse of God upon this earth. That's not at all the case. Not at all. Work was a part of the good creation of God in the beginning before the fall and is part of the creation ordinances that God gives to people on his planet. And the command to work is rooted not in the fall, but is rooted in creation and remains for all time after the fall and even into glory to come. In Genesis 2, verse 15, the Scriptures say that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Hebrew word for dress there, to dress it and to keep it, is the same Hebrew word for labor in the fourth commandment. Six days shalt thou labor God took Adam and put him in the garden to labor in it and to keep it. To make sure the plants didn't overgrow each other. That the garden was tidy. The work was delightful. There wasn't the fall yet and the curse upon his work. But he was commanded to work before the fall ever came. He was commanded to work for six days. And then to rest one day after that as God himself worked six days and rested one day after that in his creation of all things. Genesis 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended all his work. That Hebrew word is the same word as the word work in the fourth commandment. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. God worked for six days. He appointed tasks for himself in those six days, and he fulfilled those tasks. And therefore, he creates man and tells him to fulfill his appointed tasks for six days and then to rest as he did on the seventh. In fact, this is the major reason why God took six days to create the world. He didn't have to. He could have created the world like this. He could have spoken one word and the whole thing would be finished in 1.3 seconds. But he took six days to create because he was setting the pattern of the work week for us. Six days to work as he did and to rest the seventh as he did. And that calling to work that God gave specifically to Adam in the garden before the fall was part of the broader command to work that God gave to humanity already before the fall. In Genesis 1 verse 28, God said to Adam and to Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. They were to produce children and fill the earth with children who would work. Would work in the earth and uncover the beauties of God's world and work to God's glory. This command is all before the fall, you understand. All before the fall, this is what man is supposed to do. And therefore, when the end comes and we go into the consummation in the new heavens and new earth, this command will still be there. This is still our calling. To work whether there's going to be a pattern anymore of six days and then rest i doubt probably the rest will be all of the time and even our work will be part of this rest but the calling to work will remain in the new heavens and new earth when christ returns revelation 22 verse 5 we're told we will be working and there shall be no night there and they need no candle neither light of the sun for the lord god giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. They're going to rule forever and ever. The people of God are going to rule over the new heavens and new earth with Jesus Christ. That's work. That's going to require work of us. Whatever that looks like, it's going to be work, enjoyable work, but it will be work. But for now. The command to work comes to us, not in the garden of paradise before the fall, and not in the new paradise after the effects of the fall are washed away, but that command comes to us now in the fourth commandment right here and right now as we are in this world bearing the curse. Adam fell, and with him all humanity fell. And while the calling to work to God's glory does not fall away, the fourth commandment makes clear that we are to perform this work even in this age under the fall as the curse is upon us. Not that work is a part of the curse or that the work itself is cursed, but the work is affected by the curse so that the work of a mother in bearing children and raising children is affected. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Why do you think they call it labor when you're giving birth to a child? It's because it's work. And not just when they come out of the womb, but the raising of them is... Work, hard work, and it's work that's affected by the curse. There's pain in childbirth, there's struggling with your own sin and the sin of this child as you raise the child, it's affected by the fall. And to Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. The whole creation that once was moving in the same direction as Adam, was working with Adam so that his work was pleasing and delightful. Now after the fall, it's as though Adam has to swim upstream. The the creation is working against him as he is working in it. There's thorns and there's thistles. There's rust that corrupts. There's servers that crash. And besides that, men and women must carry out their callings now in a depraved state, working with other depraved human beings, working against the sin and depravity that remains in them yet. And so great is this sin and depravity that only in Jesus Christ can a human being's work be of any true, positive, spiritual value in this world. All humanity works. It's in our bones to work. It's part of God's creation of human beings under His law to work. But we only have the shell of it outside of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ can the substance of this command come back to us as something that we can fulfill. And in Jesus Christ, we can work to his glory again. Humanity lost that in the fall. He can't work to the glory of God. He can't work as part of his relationship to God, of love to God and fellowship with him, with faith in him, seeking his glory in our work. Instead, he subdues the earth in rebellion for the glory of man in the service of sin. If you have any doubt about that, Just wait till the anti-Christian kingdom comes. And outside of Jesus Christ, every human being will say, this, this is what we were working for all along, whether consciously or subconsciously. This is what we were after. So that even though he works and must work, can't get away from that. Apart from Christ, can't do it in the way he was commanded to do it. Filling the earth with the glory of the Lord. Proverbs 21 verse 4, the plowing of the wicked is sin. The law of God must be obeyed from the heart. The Lord Jesus taught us that. And it's only in Jesus Christ, renewed by him, that we can go out and work to the Lord, fulfilling our calling, fulfilling that original command, never perfectly, but obeying that law from the heart as part of our relationship with God, that I'm doing this, Lord, because I love Thee, because Thou hast given me this task, and doing it in faith to Him. But don't you see, beloved, that's precisely the dignity of the Christian's work. Don't you realize that as a child of God, you are one of the people on this planet who can truly work, who can truly take up a task, an appointment from God, and do it as it was commanded to be done to his glory, out of faith, not perfectly, but out of faith in him honoring him, and even if you're, you're hammering the nail next to an unbelieving co-worker, you're both using the exact same hammer, and you're hammering at the same time in the same way so that anybody driving by would say there's no difference between these two. There's all the difference in the world. There's an antithesis there that runs deep. One is doing this as part of his relationship to God. And one can't get any higher than man. This is the marvelous thing about our work. But even then, the curse affects the child of God too, doesn't it? And the sin is in him. And the old man is in him and all around him and his work is hard and it's frustrating and he has to deal with his own nature that complains and doesn't want to do it and is lazy. Why does the book of Proverbs speak about work 24 times and most of the time it's condemning laziness and the people of God? Why does Second Thessalonians 3 have to tell us? That if a church member refuses to work, not if he can't work, but if he can work and he refuses, he must become the object of church discipline. And if he's not repentant, even be excommunicated. It has to say that because of the effect of the fall and the curse upon our work too and our sin nature, that affects our labor. We labor under sin. But Be that as it may, The work itself is still good and the calling is still for our good and for the glory of God. And God is glorified when we carry it out unto Him, whatever that work is, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And God uses that work as part of the means by which He carries out His providential sustenance of his world and the accomplishing of his purpose in all things. The work of unbelievers, too, in spite of themselves, but for God's people consciously carrying out their vocations, their callings from God to his glory, knowing that their work is a means in his hand by which he providentially sustains his world and accomplishes his good purposes. Just think about if you woke up this morning and ate a bowl of cereal before you came here, about all the work that had to go on over this planet for you to be able to eat that bowl of cereal. From the farmer planting the seed in his ground, the tractor that he used, and all the parts for that tractor coming from different parts of the world and all the people laboring just for that farm to be able to produce grain and the harvesting of grain and the bringing of that grain to be turned into flour, and the bakers who are baking that into that cereal for you and the store and all the employees who are stocking the shelves and the janitor of the floors and the electric companies so that the lights are on and all the people working for that all so that you could have a bowl of cereal in the morning. and All of this is part of what God is using in his providence to cause things to continue to work. Ultimately, for the good of his church and the glory of his name to gather his church unto himself and preserve a church to himself. And just think about all the work that it takes for him to gather his church, the means that he uses. Think about that just here this morning, for this building to exist, for this speaker system and all the controls back there and everything that's going on so that the Word of God, the chief means of grace, may be delivered to God's people here on the Internet, at home. All kinds of work has been done for that to come to pass. This is all part of God's providential upholding of his world. And the child of God says, I get to be a part of that, consciously knowing this and doing it to his glory. So how do I determine where my place is in that work? Especially as a young person here this morning. How do I know what my vocation is? What my appointment from God is? My calling from Jehovah upon my life? My work, six days shalt thou labor and do thy work. But what is my work? What's his appointment to me as I'm growing up in his world? There are especially three parts to the answer to that question. First, There are gifts and there are sanctified desires that God has given to his people that must be considered, recognized first, and then followed if lawful. God creates each one of his people with particular gifts and particular interests. And those things may be observed and considered as a person thinks about What is the calling of God upon their life for their work? Each has their own personality. Each has been shaped by the influences upon their life. God is in control of all of that. He's in control of the gifts and the abilities. He's in control of the way that our lives were shaped. And one should take that into account. It may play a part in my vocation or calling. It's not the only thing, and it's not even the ultimate thing. Be careful, don't let it become the ultimate thing. But it should be the starting point. Secondly, the rest of the law of God must be recognized as it comes down upon us from above and has something to say about our vocations. And callings. A greater say in the end than even my gifts and desires are saying. Not absolutely everything can be done to the glory of God even as a Christian. You can't be a nurse and work for an abortion clinic and say I'm doing this to the glory of Jehovah God. You can't work in a position that does damage to yourself spiritually or to your generations after you spiritually. The other calls of God upon your life can restrict your vocation even if you think it comes up against what your gifts and desires are. You must be able to obey the other part of the fourth commandment as you are obeying this part of the fourth commandment. You can't say, well, I have the gifts to do this and the abilities and the desire to do this, and even though it requires me to dishonor the Lord's day, I'm going to do it because after all, He gave me the gifts to do it, and I'm going to be missing my vote." No. His law comes upon us and can restrict. A woman, no matter how gifted she is, Or how called she feels is restricted by the other laws of God from being an office bearer in the church. God's calling to obey his law is greater than his calling to use my gifts in the way I want. He'll use them, he'll use them in another way then. And then third, just as the law of God comes down from above and may limit So too the providence of God comes upon my life from above and may limit and even overrule my desires. Perhaps you want to go to school to be a teacher. You have the gifts to be a teacher. You have the desire to be a teacher. It's lawful for you to be a teacher. God in his providence brings some tragedy into the life of your family. And in order to take care of your family you can't be a teacher anymore. God's providence has limited what you desire to be your occupation and calling. Perhaps you went to school to be a doctor and you are a woman and then in God's providence you're married and he gives you children and now his primary calling upon your life is to raise these children with your husband to God's glory. His providence puts a limit. Perhaps you want to be an electrician and you go to school to be an electrician and you, you graduate and you become an electrician. You have an apprenticeship and you, you get all the way to being a, a master electrician. But the supply of electricians is high and the demand is low and there's no job for you. And God says, no, in my providence, you're not going to be one. Not now at least. Or maybe you are going to be one, you think, and you get that job, but it doesn't pay you enough to be able to support your family and the causes of the kingdom, and God points you to another way. Just because you say, I want to be a policeman, I have the gifts to be a policeman, and the desire to be a policeman, doesn't mean you're absolutely going to be. God may limit that by his law and by his providence. And if he does, it doesn't mean you've missed your vocation doesn't mean you've missed your calling in life he directs us and a lot of times he allows us to go with our desires he himself works with our desires you might say but sometimes he works against them and even when he does sometimes those are the times when our gifts are used most beautifully in ways that we never would have thought for His glory. But at the end of the day, it's important to remember that our callings, adults, young people, children, are always in the present. Whatever young people your desires might be for the future, or adults, what your desires might be for the future, for your career or a different path, Don't think that that's then your vocation. And right now you don't have a vocation, a calling from God. And you're just waiting for it. Young people, you might have big plans about your future. I'm going to graduate with this degree and I'm hopefully going to enter this field or whatever else it might be. And that's going to be my calling in life. Maybe it is. But that doesn't mean you don't have a calling in your life right now. Your calling is in your present and being a student is a calling. It's a vocation from God that he himself appoints to you right now in your life. Your part-time job is a calling from him just as much as that future job you hope to get is. Your being a son or a daughter of your parents is a vocation, a calling from God that you may not disregard. Your being a brother or sister is a calling from God that you may not disregard. It follows then that we have many callings in our life, don't we? And sometimes more than one at the same time. We have a calling to be a husband, and that's just as important as our calling to do our daily job. We have a calling from God. To work on a committee at church, that's a call from God, an appointment from God himself. Thy work, just like the job is thy work. Children, your science homework is a task appointed by God to you in your vocation as a student. You're a student. That's your work. That's your appointment. And here's your labors. Here's your tasks that you have to work hard with sweat in order to fulfill. God himself gives that to you. Not just the teacher. Not just your parents. God himself gives you that calling. It's a calling from him. And when you do it, you do it to his glory. And he's pleased by it. When you do it hard to his glory. Always seeking The glory of God and the good of your neighbor. This is the law of God we're expounding, that we are to honor as the rule over our life, as the Lord Jesus taught us, in love for God and in love for the neighbor. Do you love the neighbor in your work? Do you realize that fulfilling your vocations is one of the chief ways you love the neighbor as yourself. That's so important. I'm going to say it again. Do you realize that fulfilling your vocations is one of the chief ways that you love the neighbor? Whether that neighbor is the person who buys your product you are producing, the employee that you pay a good wage to, The employer that you honor seek the good of the child I'm raising in my home the body of Jesus Christ around me that I serve one of the primary ways that I keep that great commandment to love the neighbor as myself is by fulfilling my vocations
1: honorably
0: for the good and benefit of others that are around me. Not lazy. Not making a defective product. Not lying and cheating in order to get a buck. But doing it for their good. Even as I earn my living. Dealing kindly with my fellow employees. With my boss. Showing love to the neighbor. I love the neighbor in fulfilling my vocations. In giving witness to my unbelieving neighbor's with whom I work. Not everybody can give witness to a construction worker. But if you're a construction worker, you're in that world. And you rub shoulders with other construction workers, probably unbelieving ones, and you can give witness there. Not everybody can give witness to doctors. But if you're working in that world, you have the opportunity to give witness there. That's why God gives us different callings and positions. We love our believing neighbor, very importantly, by giving a portion of our paycheck to support kingdom causes in the church and in the school. Because I do that, not just so that I can have the preaching of the word in my children, but so that they can too, and their children. And I support this school, not just so that my children can have this education, but so that their children can too, and their generations after them. We love the neighbor in a marvelous way by fulfilling our vocations. And we love God in a marvelous way by fulfilling our vocations ultimately doing it unto Him, even loving the neighbor for His glory. Did you notice how often that's repeated in Ephesians 6 that we read this morning? Verse 5, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Verse 6, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ. Verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men verse 9 you masters do the same things forbearing threatening knowing that your master is in heaven always we are to be conscious of the fact that i am doing this before god in christ unto his glory he's redeemed me by the blood of his own son taken me into his house to live before his face i work For his glory, I'm stewards of what he's given, the gifts and opportunities and time and abilities, that I might display his glory in what I do and how I do it. This makes work a holy thing. This makes work a Christ-like thing. Christ was a worker too, you know. He came to this earth with a vocation, a calling, an appointment from God himself to be mediator of the covenant of grace, to become the ground for that covenant, executor of that covenant. He had other vocations too at the same time. He was a son of a mother and of an adoptive father. He was a carpenter for 20 years until he was anointed by the Spirit and put into his office at 30 years old. And in all of it, he sought the glory of God. And there you see him upon the cross doing his ultimate work, fulfilling his ultimate vocation. Is this not labor to bear the eternal wrath of God upon himself for you and for me? There you see the working Christ laboring under the weight of the consequences of our laziness in our tasks, of our selfishness in fulfilling our callings, that he might bear our sin and our work away and that he might empower us to work more and more as he worked, faithful to Jehovah, seeking the glory of Jehovah God. Gratitude to him for what he's done for us until the day when he removes all sin from us and from each other, and we will work world without end to his glory perfectly. Put that all together, beloved. You can't help but pray together. In hope, the words of the psalmist, as we go back to our work week this week, establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Amen. Father, bless thy word to our hearing, and give us strength by that word to fulfill our callings to thy glory and thy honor. In our Savior's name we pray, amen.